have a very similar answer when people ask me questions like, well, how are we going to measure advertising effectiveness when we don't have cookies? Well, how did we measure it 20 years ago? All those things still work. In fact, there are, some of them are much better than they were at the time due to advances in computing. Hello to you and welcome back to Marketing Trek, the podcast for professionals with a passion for marketing and communications where the best minds in the industry explore the hottest trends in marketing and discuss the pitfalls companies and pros need to avoid. My name is Dominic Halls. I am the Group Chief Executive Officer at Selby Anderson, which is a fast, fast growing marketing services group. Last week on the podcast, we spoke to various experts about radio and the future of voice. In the episode, I chatted with Dan Ellis, Managing Director of Orchid, about how voice is unlocking barriers for disadvantaged people. I sat down with audio producer Harry Radcliffe, and we discussed how noise and sound can influence the mind and our emotions. And I met with Marco Isle, where he outlined why we're entering a golden age of audio. So be sure to check that episode out if you haven't already. On today's episode of the podcast, we're going to be breaking open the jar and talking about cookies. Let's start at the beginning. What are cookies? A cookie is a small file that downloads to your computer when you visit a website. Cookies are used both to make our experiences users on the internet easier, but they also make an advertiser's work easier by giving them information about us. Now, cookies come in many shapes and sizes. They can be first, second, third-party cookies, all of which have different meanings. They've been an essential component of the internet since Web 2.0, but with an ever-increasing assault on privacy and scandals like the Cambridge Analytica debacle, well, it's made users trust less online. So the whole question of how we use cookies has been hotly debated in recent years. And in addition, the internet's changing in in a really big way. Web 3.0 is coming. The advent of blockchain technology and token-based economics is going to fundamentally redefine how users surf the internet and how advertisers sell on the internet. So how do companies and brands ethically go about making the most out of cookies? And with the onset of Web 3.0, what are they going to look like and feel like in the future? To answer these questions, I spoke to Steve Millman, who is the Senior Vice President Global Research and Operations at Dynata. Now, Steve has spent his career with a specific focus on quantitative and statistical analysis, survey design, research design, and other applied research techniques. Now, he's currently, as I said, he's the SVP for Dynata's Advertising Solutions Group. Uh, So he's an ideal person to talk to about the cookie-less future, because Apart from leading their global operations research, he's also a prolific uh, technologist and data scientist. We're going to speak to Steve to discuss exactly what cookies are, and we get the scoop on an amazing innovation Steve's designed that's going to redefine how we use cookies in the future. But first, I really wanted to get to know Steve a little better because he's a fascinating person. I wanted to learn a bit more about his background and exactly the kind of work that he does. My name is Steve Millman. I'm the Senior Vice President for Global Research and Operations for Dynata's Advertising Solutions Division. Dynata is the world's largest online survey platform and insights platform. In the Advertising Solutions Division, we measure the effect of advertising across the entire life cycle of the ad. To begin with, 
Steve gives us the lowdown on what cookies are and how marketers can use them. So over the last 20 years or so, marketers have become very reliant on cookies for a variety of reasons, but principally they circle around the idea that you can resolve an ad served to a specific human being. So did an ad get served to a specific person? And then what else do I know about that person that I can stitch together? What are the websites do they go to? What is their household? What kind of purchases have they made? And stitching these things together all require cookies. There are other ways to do them, and there are certain things that are emerging. But that's what the cookies have been relying on. And it's, frankly, a bit of a crutch. And it's not the most privacy-sensitive way to go about this kind of thing, because it's hard for consumers who aren't in the market research world, it's hard for them to understand the choices that they're making and when they are and are not giving up privacy. I believe it's actually much more benign than most people think it is in terms of what we do with the data, but it's virtually impossible to give informed consent in some of the ways these things happen. So my personal view, and certainly the view of Dynata, is that we like the fact that the industry is leaning into a more privacy-centric, human-centric approach to measurement, where a user's knowing consent to the information they're providing is clear. Steve mentioning consent here is important because I think cookies have quite a few negative connotations attached to them. And I wanted to get an understanding into why consent is such a key question in how cookies are going to be implemented. So I asked Steve about this. Personally, so speaking for myself, I think GDPR was a very good idea in general. But part of the problem is a reluctance in the ad tech world to police itself in a way that's appropriate. So the ad tech world could have gotten together and said, let's form a series of principles. Let's adhere to those principles and that those principles involve knowledgeable consent, that these principles involve protection of privacy and things of that nature. But there's money to be made and not every player in this ad tech community, as in any industry, it was strictly speaking on board with the idea. So it left policymakers and regulators with very little choice but to step in and do it for them. And the problem is that the folks making these policies, with exceptions, by and large don't understand the tech. And so they make rules that they believe will be sufficiently broad to be effective, but specifically tailored to survive challenge. And when you do that, things get complicated. They get really complicated. So I was a little confused about the difference between a specific user and an IP address. So I asked Steve to clarify this, and here's what he had to say. Yeah, so cookies realistically resolve to a browser. So cookies aren't people as much as we often talk about them as though they are. You could potentially be running three or four different browsers on your Mac there. Each of those would have a different cookie, even to the same first party uh, creating the, the cookie. So if you go to CNN International and it drops a cookie, you could, you'd have a different cookie on each of those. So th- those four browsers all have a cookie. They're all you. However, you could have children or a spouse that also use this computer. And so there's a bit of degradation as you go that route. Cookies pass IP addresses by and large. And so the degree to which people are doing IP matching is often also cookie based. Then when you're on a different website and you buy something, if you have a vendor who can stitch the cookie drop there and the cookie dropped at CNN, they're gonna know the next time you're on CNN that you bought that pair of shoes. And it might say, you know, this guy likes shoes, let's show him some other shoes. For as much as we might feel that our devices and technology in general has become increasingly effective at predicting or even manipulating our behavior, it's still not perfect. So I asked Steve about some of the flaws around advertising, retargeting, and cookies. Let's have a listen to his answer. 
So there are things that cookies allow advertisers to do, but there are also things by their nature they encourage them to do that, that aren't, from a user point of view, aren't so smart. Like when you go buy a fridge and all you see is fridge ads the last three weeks because you just bought one. It's kind of irritating. It's incredibly irritating. It's also super amusing if you're me because I measure ad effectiveness for a living and I'm looking at that and I'm thinking wasted impression, wasted impression, wasted impression. But you want to have the capability because if I search for refrigerators or if I go to a site and I browse for refrigerators or if I within a walled garden talk about refrigerators, it's actually, from my perspective, it's a positive experience to then have an ad served to me that helps me with that selection. Uh, one of the things I actually like to do when I make major purchases is that I will post it on social media and I will do searches in three different search engines. And then I sit back and wait for somebody to send me a coupon. I, I make a lot of money this way, right? Well, I save a lot of money this way. My wife would tell you I spend a lot of money this way. It's really dependent on your perspective, I suppose. But it is digital advertising is cheap on a per impression basis and it's complicated and expensive to continuously go back and match to a CRM to see if somebody's bought the item that I'm advertising. So if I'm Nike and I've been looking for shoes and they serve me ads and then I go out and buy a Nike, maybe Nike could stitch that together and stop sending me Nike ads, maybe. But it's expensive and it's challenging. Nobody else who sells shoes is going to know I bought a Nike. So it's actually cheaper to waste those impressions in some circumstances than to go back and figure out that I've bought them already. If you're the kind of person who's selling ad space and you say, hey, I've got this great segment for activation for people who are getting ready to buy shoes, it's not really in my interest to narrow that target and tell, my, tell folks to pay me less money and then spend all the additional effort to figure out who may have already bought it. That is going to make the lift results look better. So one of the things about the cookless future is it's going to get increasingly hard for advertisers to get an appropriate message to their consumers. And, and we know that cookies aren't perfect, and many consumers have questions around, well, both them and their use. So what other way can marketers advertise to consumers? Let's hear Steve's thoughts. There's a hundred ways. What's the uh, best way of doing it, in your know, opinion? <laughs> it's more complicated than that. It's always an unfortunate answer that nobody really likes to hear. Certainly my clients don't care for it. But the right way to do it, maybe start with that, is to be reliant on first-party data. So what is first-party data? First-party data is data that is provided to you in a manner that is clear to the provider of the data that you have it, that you have their permission to use it, and that you won't use it for direct marketing. And that may sound weird when I say, how do I use that for marketing? You don't use it for direct marketing, but you can use it to create lookalikes to create scale. And so you learn from your first-party data. You can use the information there to make knowledgeable guesses about people you don't know based on the things you do. Cool. So we know a lot about our panelists. I know if you're a pet owner, I know if you have diabetes, I know where you live, I know all sorts of things, I know your income, gender, and those are all things they have willingly told me in return, in most cases for compensation. So there's a relationship. There's very clear privacy rules and we never ever give out PII, personally identifiable information, and we never resell. If there are cases where we will ask somebody to download software so that we can see what they do. We don't do a lot of that, but it comes up from time to time. In those cases, we say, hey, listen, we'd like you to download this bit of software. And that bit of software is going to allow us to see certain activities on your computer. Here's what they are. If you'd like to do it, we'll, we will compensate you for it. Here's what we won't do. And here's how you can back out anytime you like. Then we're getting what they call metered data or behavioral data. 
And that's other data that we can use to construct models. And so I might be able to build then a profile of people who like to watch sporting events online. They read the news, they own dogs, and they make 60,000 to 100,000 pounds. If that's a valuable segment to a client, I can say, great, well, I have these attributes. I can model whether or not people I don't know this well, but I know things about them, how likely they are to be in that group. And then when you go out and you serve your ad to that audience, they're not obviously all going to be in target. That never happens. I think the average in target rate in the industry is in the low to mid 40%, but you become much more likely to hit them than you would if you were just hitting a broad age demographic. I still had questions on the exact framework and the method for targeting consumers without cookies. So I asked Steve for a little more detail on this. And he he gave me a really insightful answer around the importance of context, making sensible predictions and how traditional methods still work when targeting consumers. And that, if you know anything about me, I love the fact that good old fashioned traditional methods still work. Let's take a listen. I have a very similar answer when people ask me questions like, well, how are we going to measure advertising effectiveness when we don't have cookies? Well, how did we measure it 20 years ago? All those things still work. In fact, there are, some of them are much better than they were at the time due to advances in computing. But in context is a great way to do it. If you use a data provider like us or somebody else to tell you what the demographics are on a particular publisher or across publishers who like a particular kind of content, you can then buy ads against the content instead, which is what yeah. you're describing. The other way to do it is you have some of these really large-scale very professional companies, you know, think about the big ones, right? Like Newstar or LiveRamp, Oracle, or any of the really big ones. And what they're doing in different ways, right? I'm not advocating for any for the use or disuse of any of these companies. Where they are increasingly leaning to is the accumulation of other people's first party data and being able to stitch that together to create massive amounts of data where some of the information is deterministic, so if you tell me that you're a white man in your 40s, you could argue that is or is not deterministic because we generally believe people when they tell us things like that. If you do things that a white male in their 40s would do, and I have that information, I might infer that you're probably that, and that's probabilistic data. So they create this sort of massive deterministic and probabilistic data from valid first-party sources where they are not having to stitch these things together through cookies, but rather are able to stitch it together through other means. For example, maybe they all have PII and you're able to go into a clean room where nobody gets to see anybody else's data. A match happens and then the match information gets passed without ever passing PII. And those kind of clean room solutions are, are very good. You do that enough, you can develop extraordinarily large audiences where you know a little bit about a lot of people, not all the people, but you know, hundreds of millions of people. And that becomes a way that you can start also building audiences. PII. Personally identifiable information. In the US, we're talking about name, address, telephone number. In the European Union, increasingly IP address is considered PII as well. And this is one of the reasons why IP address is becoming an increasingly problematic approach. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. This is just a reminder, you're listening to Marketing Trek, powered by Selby Anderson. 
You can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Dom Hawes. Please do come and connect to me. Please don't try and sell something to me on the first message you send me. But I love to hear from listeners. So please do connect. Dom Hawes uh, at Selby Anderson. I am on LinkedIn. Email marketing is a subject we've been debating a lot recently. If you're anything like me, your inbox is absolutely rammed full of spam, full of unsolicited emails. And a great deal of it, thanks to Outlook's um, technology, I don't even get to see because it doesn't come into my focus inbox. But even then, I have to wade through loads. And, and that makes me wonder, you know, as a marketer, is email marketing ineffective these days? That's what I asked Steve. Uh, all I know is that there's a lot of vendors out there that seem very worried about my health. <laughs> yeah, I mean, email marketing is never going to be very effective. It's just because, as you say, the volume. And then you've also got vendors, companies that do extraordinarily good job at, at weeding them out. I think one of the best examples is Google with their email system, where it automatically sorts your email into things it believes are really meant for you, things that it believes are promotional. So all of these email marketing, they end up in a folder that you never look at. And also people have just gotten extraordinarily good at scanning through email and figuring out which one they need to look at. Yeah. Yeah, except for my father. <laughs> so let's get down to the meat of the subject. In this next section, Steve speaks about the difference between first and third party cookies and why first party cookies are preferable. It's a bit of a misnomer to say that cookies are going away. What's being taken away is third-party cookies. So a first-party cookie is, it's my website. I'm, let's go back to CNN International, who is not paying me for this, by the way. But if we're talking about CNN International and their site requires cookies, they're still going to be allowed to drop a first-party cookie. So first-party means that the per entity writing the cookie to your device is the publisher of the page you're on, and not an entity that has taken a little piece of that page and dropped some script in. So if an ad is run and it has a Dynata tag and it's running on CNN, if we were to try to drop that tag on the user at that moment, that would be a third-party tag. I don't believe we have use cases for that. I don't do it in advertising measurement. Because people come to our website to take surveys and to get rewards, we dropped cookies when they're on our website. So our cookies are first-party. So the reason why third-party cookies are not, are not desirable by the browsers and others, whereas first-party cookies are sort of rational and useful, is first-party cookies, first of all, it presumes you wanted to be where you are and that there is some relationship between you and that publisher. Second, you're giving consent to the publisher to do it under the laws we now have, and you're getting a value exchange. The CNN is getting your eyeballs and they can sell advertising to you. You're getting new service that you want. If I drop the Dynata tag based on an ad you that's being shown, which again, there's no value exchange. I'm getting something for nothing and you don't know I'm doing it. And that's the principal problem. And if you do it on enough websites, you can stitch those together and do something called digital fingerprinting. And this is the idea that I know everything you do online, not literally, but a lot. And in a way that's sort of creepy, in a way that is not based on per your permission and where you don't really have any possible way to go out and say, I want you to stop and I want you to delete my data. Because unless you could open up the HTML code, you could find these tags. They're actually pretty easy to spot if you know how to look for them, but no users doing that. Okay. That's really interesting. So from what I'm gathering, 
When users are on a website which drops third-party cookies, they're not being dropped necessarily by the advertiser directly. I, I, I need some clarity on that. So I asked Steve to explain. It could be any of a number of people. So there could be a site tag. So I'll give you an example of Comscore. I was head of research at Comscore for a number of years. They will make a relationship with a publisher to put their tag on the website itself. Still a third-party tag. Pretty sure you would still call that a third-party tag. But there's a value to that to the publisher. So the publisher, I want to know how many people went to my website. I want to have a general sense of their demography. And I then want to be able to use that to be able to sell advertising. So I can say, you know what? You are looking for men 25 to 55 who make over 100,000 pounds. And that's 40% of my audience. And there's about 500,000 people who come and visit every month. And that's why you should put advertising on my website. Also, virtually all ads have a tag on them if the site permits them. And those can be for the purpose of providing third-party verification to the ad buyer. Uh, because the, the publisher itself may not be involved in this process directly. It could be bought through a programmatic. And so if I'm selling programmatic, the person buying it wants an independent third party to say, I paid for 100 million ad, ad impressions that I served. Could I get them served? Of those 100 million, how many went to my target audience? Of the ones that went to my target audience, how many of them were actually on screen? Things like that. Next, I wanted to know when there's an auction going on for ad space, do auction losers also get the cookie information for free? And he goes on to tell me about an amazing development he's made in this space. Yeah, it shouldn't work that way. So there is an unfortunate amount of fraud in the industry. But if the system's working the way it's intended to work, only the winner of the auction renders on the screen and you have to have your code render on the browser in order for that tag to drop. So I'd like to talk a little bit about cookie-less ad effectiveness measurement. And we've talked a lot about how are we going to deliver ads or know that they were delivered when things go cookie-less, when third-party cookies are deprecated. But the measurement problem is actually a very significant one as well. So people still want to know whether or not their ad worked. And to know if their ad works, they need to know how it impacted people who did and didn't see it. How people who, I should say, who saw the ad are impacted differently than people who didn't see the ad. And so we need to find ways, and we are finding ways to do that. I'll give you a couple of examples of ways that we're doing that. We've partnered with Google to get access to their ads data hub. And what this is, is a double consented approach where the panelist tells us that it's okay for us to look at their YouTube impression history. And they separately tell Google that it's okay for Dynata to look at their YouTube history. If they agree to both sides, then we can connect to Google's clean room and we can ping it and say, which of our panelists who are within this subset who are consented, which of our panelists were not exposed to a YouTube ad. This only works on YouTube, just to be clear. And so we're able to measure to create exposed and non-exposed groups for YouTube advertising that is fully consented, it's fully transparent and unreliant on cookies. And anonymized as well, right? If it's been through the clean room. Yeah, well, the match is anonymous. The match is, yeah. yeah. We, I mean, I know who, the, who my panelist you know who is. You know your panelists are. But I don't know anything else about them from Google. I don't know their Google ID, yeah, their okay. address. I yeah, don't yeah. know anything else they might do. I don't get access to their search history. All I know is just for the ads I'm allowed to measure, which are the ones I'm contracted to measure. Did you or did you not see it? Cool. Another great example is we're building cohorts 
So the ability to create exposed and non-exposed groups for measurement purposes. So it's the world's largest online publisher. It's Facebook, right? And Facebook has its own measurement process, but there are people who want independent third-party measurement. You can't, can't drop a cookie on Facebook and you can't get into the environment. And so what we've done is we have created a process where it's essentially like a random control trial. And what we do is we create a segment of Dynata panelists at Facebook. And you can share a segment in Facebook because the person receiving the segment only knows that the segment exists and how it's defined. They have absolutely no idea who's in it. That's all withheld and that's important for privacy purposes. But what it means is I could say, here's a group of people we know are Dynata panelists and we want you to exclude them from any campaign you run. And so by definition, they don't get the ad served. So now I have a clean palette. Then I take that clean palette. My client will give me their ad. And then I will serve that ad on their behalf to a randomly selected group that matches their target. And now I have created an exposed group that I know only was exposed by me, right? Because it couldn't have been exposed in any other way. I have a control group that I know wasn't exposed. And then while I don't know what any specific individual Right. I don't know that you were exposed three times, two times, five times. I know you were exposed. And I know on average how much the group was exposed. In fact, I can create the average frequency of exposure required to match what the campaign is looking to do. And I can, in that fashion, you know, compare a group that didn't get it, who looked just like the people who did, and tell you, here's how effective that campaign was on Facebook in a manner that's cookie-less, that's GDPR compliant, that is across all devices, however you happen to use Facebook, however you use it, it's live and in market. And that has worked really, really well. And that so, is really awesome. Thanks. We're the only ones who've, who do this. We invented this back about a year ago now. We actually won an Ogilvy Award for this. I'm not surprised. How long does how long the cycle go? So when you're testing, are you, t- are you testing multiple iterations of the same uh, campaigns? It's, or? Because we're pulsing it, it's extraordinarily fast. And Actually, many of our clients like us to pulse multiple times, but we'll expose the group we have intended to expose a hot and heavy for about 48 hours. So in the Facebook manager, you can run a frequency campaign or a reach campaign. So we run it as a reach to make sure we're getting as many people as we can. And we switch it to a frequency to try and drive up the average frequency. And when we've hit about where we want to hit, it takes about 48 hours in most cases. We start collecting control. So the whole thing can be done in a week. Okay. And then go live, presumably go live immediately and start adjusting, yeah. refining. Exactly. And so they can make changes. We could do it again the next week. Wow. That's so cool. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, it's one of those funny things where it came to me quite literally in the shower. And, and it, it made me angry for a moment because I couldn't believe it didn't come to me sooner. <laughs> I had it through legal two days later. Uh, we had a working prototype a week later, and we did live tests on it uh, for about a month. And I had a first client virtually immediately, which never happens. I've never had a product cycle move that quick. That's incredible. So I wanted to know if Steve and Dynata have anything else up their sleeve. We have also developed, I'm afraid I can't tell you the specifics yet, but we have developed a methodology that's going to allow us to measure programmatic in a cookie-less manner. So measure campaigns where you don't know where the ads are going to be served in advance. We're very excited about this. It should work across all major browsers. So today, all third-party cookies have already been deprecated on Safari, Safari, for example, or Firefox. 
So anybody who's measuring with a cookie right now is measuring Chrome. Chrome's 40% of the U.S. market, I think 50% of the global market. Those numbers may be old. But today, nobody's measuring with cookies. Nobody's measuring Firefox or Safari. So we'll be able to open that back up. And I'm very excited. The prototype works. We tested that pretty thoroughly. So we're now working to see if we can get it at scale. And when's, when, when are you looking to launch? That, is that a this year launch? Next year launch? No, I guess it depends on what you mean by this year. It's not the year we're in. <laughs> we, we were actually... We would have been prepared to launch it this year had Google not yeah. sort of kicked the can down the yeah. field. When they did, I also run product for my organization, so I shifted resources to other things that would have a larger revenue impact in the short term, but 100% will be live in 2022. Wow. Okay. I am genuinely amazed by this. Not only from how much opportunity unlocking Firefox will bring, but also how quick the rollout for this tech is. It just goes to show how quickly the digital world's innovating. So we've now talked about third and first party cookies. And the final question, I just wanted to know a little bit more about zero party data. And here's what Steve had to say. So it's become a big in marketing for certain companies. And what's striking about it is no one seems to understand what it actually is. There was a Forrester article where the author, I quite correctly and I very much agreed with her, wanted to talk about a subset of first-party data, which was defined as having value exchange that was defined as being strictly self-report, transparent, and never for resale. And if you read the article, it's behind a paywall, and I think this is why the marketers use it without understanding the concept. <laughs> but the idea behind it is, is that they, there should be a way for a brand to have a conversation with their consumers in a way that the consumers feel protected and where the consumers get something out, out of that conversation. And at the same time, the brand gets the information they need to be to better serve their consumer base. It makes perfect sense. And it's a great way to think about being an ethical marketer. What's happened is some folks have sort of grabbed onto it and said, it's sort of defining everything under the sun is zero party. Interestingly, two of the largest users that I've seen in their marketing of this term are principally meters. Uh, so they've got software on the machine, they're collecting data. And there's nothing wrong with it if you're going through the correct consent, but that's not zero party data. It's just first party data. It's sort of like they're just saying the first party data itself is brand new, uh, yeah. that no one's ever heard of it before. As a person who does math for a living, I think the primary problem I have with this is that it should be zeroth party data because it's the cardinal versus ordinal, right? We talk about first party, second party, and third party. We don't talk about one party, two party, three party, right? So it should be zeroth party. So if I can't get anybody to agree with me on anything else, I'd love to get people to agree to call it zeroth. Have you trademarked that? No, and I don't think I should. <laughs> that would be evil. <laughs> yeah, well, at the end of the day, I think it's being badly misused. And it's yeah. interesting. Uh, the reason I'm bringing it up is because I'm starting to see it in proposals where people okay. will say in a proposal, tell me your zero party strategy. Tell me what you're doing with zero party data. Dynata is the world's largest survey panel by any rational definition, we are also, therefore, the world's largest supplier of zero-party data, right? Exclusively self-report, there's a value exchange, and we don't resell. So by any definition, Dynata is far and away the world's largest zero-party data provider. From my perspective, it would be silly to market us this way, but I think we may need to start talking yeah. about it just because the industry is talking about it. 
Wow, that uh, undoubtedly has been one of my favourite episodes so far because I'm, I'm a bit nerdy and I quite like getting deep into, into technology. So for me, that's up right up there with my favourite conversations I've had. But there's, there's also a lot to unpack from today. My key takeaways from the conversation with Steve, I think, is that even if cookies have been a ubiquitous part of 2.0, Web 2.0, everything now changes. And I think the key parts of the change are being directed at the consumer and consumer experience. You know, I think ultimately people are getting more and more uneasy with their data being given effectively and then harvested for free. They're, they're uneasy about, about being tracked. They're uneasy about you know, retargeting the way advertisements seem to follow you around the internet. They're basically uneasy about being advertised to without their consent. And fundamentally, cookies have a huge number of practical faults in their makeup too that that don't actually make them as effective as they are either from the consumer point but but also from the advertiser's point of view in the end as steve mentioned early in the show the traditional method like pre-cookies they're still effective traditional targeting still works so the best way to advertise to consumers is when they're aware that you are and they're consenting But it's so exciting to me anyway to hear there are people like Steve who are out there on the digital front line designing the very next iteration of web advertising that ultimately is going to bring the user, the consumer, closer to brands rather than further apart. So thank you, Steve, for joining me on the show. I really, really enjoyed your conversation and it's been really insightful. Next week, we explore everything to do with direct-to-consumer commerce. In the show, I meet with Dan Ellis from Orchid to discuss how e-commerce is shifting practices from a B2B perspective. I also speak to Jerry Hopkinson, CEO of Selby Labs, who outlines the key principles for how a business can grow their e-commerce operation. And I sit down with marketing and communications pro Yakemi Ataru on why digital can never quite replace human-to-human interaction when it comes to business. It's an epic episode. Please, please don't miss it. I am deeply grateful to you for listening to this episode of Marketing Trek. I know your time is extraordinarily precious because mine is too, but I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I would be very grateful if you would please subscribe on whatever your favorite channel is, but I'd be even more grateful if you'd write us a review. If you don't want to do that publicly, you can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Dom Hawes at Selby Anderson. Please send me a connection request and please send me a message and I would be delighted to receive feedback, both good and bad. This podcast was recorded at Terminal Studios. You can find that at terminalstudios.co.uk and the show was produced by Selby Anderson. You can find us at selbyanderson.com. Thank you.